Welcome to the Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK. Today, Rob Bates and Victoria Gamelski talk about secondhand watch prices, the cost of entering the jewelry business, and an early look at a diamond documentary. Hey everyone, welcome to the Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, Editor-in-Chief of JCK and jckonline.com. And this is Rob Bates, News Director of JCK and JCK Online in hot, sweaty New York City. It's really, it's uh, nasty here. I've heard. Is it nastier than like your typical July peak humidity summer? Does it feel worse? Yeah, it definitely feels worse. I mean, you know, it's like 90 degrees at, you know, six o'clock at night. And it's usually, you know, August is usually where it really gets heavy. I mean, if August is going to be worse than this, we're all going to be in trouble, but uh, hopefully not. Yeah, I feel like everybody that I know on the East Coast is complaining about it. I get it. Humidity adds a, a layer of horror onto all kinds of heat problems. So even though California is very hot, it definitely does not suffer the humidity that you're stuck with. It's hard to stay professional, you know, like you don't, yeah. you don't want to do a lot of appointments in July in New York because it's just hard to keep your composure. Meanwhile, I just came back. I went to SeaWorld this weekend and I- Wow, cool. Yeah, which was my first time there, my son's first time there, my partner's first time there. And I had to remind myself, wasn't there a controversy around SeaWorld? There was a bit of a controversy around SeaWorld. There was. I forgot what it was. Yeah, there was a documentary called Blackfish that talked about their orca breeding program. And I have to be honest, the orcas were the best part of our day (laughs) yesterday. But- we won't go into that. I, I As we're watching the show, I'm thinking, wait a minute, am I even supposed to be here? They did that do- documentary, and this is maybe foreshadowing for something we're going to be talking about today, but that documentary about SeaWorld did, in fact, bring about change. So let me leave it at that as a little foreshadowing of the power of a documentary. Yeah, and uh, I assume your son had a good time. He did. He, you know, he was zonked by like three. He fell asleep in his stroller, but yeah, it was great. You know, it's always fun to have. And it was his, a good friend of mine, her daughter is just a little older than him and it was her birthday so it was just fun to be out and have an excursion and spend the night at a hotel and you know all that it's good stuff and for three-year-olds hotels are so exciting you know right right right, <laughs> so, right. so exciting but I'm back at my desk and um just thinking about it is kind of slow it's always a bit slow in July and I really appreciate that because after the frenzy that is January to June in our industry especially for us getting ready for the JCK show and all the issues and reports that come with that I'm always grateful for a little bit of a sort of a step back, a little break from the hubbub in the summer. But it's still, you know, clearly there's still news happening, still things going on. I wanted to tell you a little bit, just dive right into the topic number one today, which is the secondhand watch market. I will update you on that via a story that I just wrote for the Times that ran just a couple of days ago on July 23rd. And the story is about the online auction market. And really, I spoke to a bunch of kind of upstarts in the space who are pioneering this online auction model, and they're seeing great success. Part of that came out of the pandemic, where, of course, demand for all things digital skyrocketed. And what we saw was that the main established auction houses, Christie's and Sotheby's, less so Phillips, which is just getting into online auctions literally this summer. But Christie's and Sotheby's, you know, had to stage their sales online like so many other 
people had to turn their business digital over the course of a few weeks. And the growth in not only sales, but new buyers, people who maybe may have been intimidated by a traditional auction house where you either come and bid live or you have to call in and bid over the phone or you can bid online, but it has to be at that prescribed hour where everybody's bidding. You know, that is an intimidating process. And so these auctioneers, companies like Loop This, which is founded by uh, two well-regarded dealers in the vintage watch community, Eric Koo and uh, his co-founder's name is escaping me. I apologize for that. But their site is based in LA and they have had some really big sales over the last year and especially this past spring where they made some crazy numbers. They sold a Cartier, a London crash. So crash is a famous Cartier shaped timepiece. It looks like it is kind of bent out of shape and they loop this, sold it on its site in May and achieved like 1.5 plus million dollars for it, which is when you factor in the 10% buyer's premium about almost twice what a traditional auction house had sold a London crash for back in 21. So the point being that people are flocking to online auctions in a way that, you know, was certainly expedited and kind of enhanced by the pandemic. But one of the things that's interesting is that one, another reason that online auctions in the watch world specifically are doing well is because prices are fluctuating at the moment. So when something is on a resale site like a Chrono 24 or you know a Watchbox, I guess any of these resale sites that have done really, really well over the last few years, especially in the pre-owned space, when prices are fluctuating, you're not entirely sure what market value is. And so the auction format is a good way to gauge that. Of course, not when people become passionate and you've become, you know, you get a bidder and an underbidder and they're fighting it out, duking it out for something that obviously has emotional value to them. Maybe that's not going to be the greatest gauge of market value, but in general, people will bid up until a point where they feel it doesn't make sense to bid. And so you get something that may be a truer snapshot of the market than just a random seller posting a, a watch. Now, what we saw and, and why this makes sense or why this is important is that we have seen the secondhand watch market, particularly for these key blue chip models, the Rolex Daytona, the Patek Philippe Nautilus, the Audemars Piguet Royal Oak, went into crazy overdrive just shortly after the start of the pandemic and went into a space that started attracting crypto billionaires and you know people flush with cash from the stock market. And we really started to hear people talk about luxury watches as an asset class in like a very real legitimate way. You know, the question whether it was a bubble and whether these prices we were seeing on secondary channels, you know, two, three, four, five times retail value, whether that was sustainable, whether this was kind of a gateway to a new understanding of the luxury watch market, or if it was just a bubble that was going to burst. We have some way to answer that question now because nobody really knew. And as it turns out in April, prices on those blue chip models did start declining. And from what I'm gathering, those declines now are in the realm of 20 to 30%. Now, Mind you, there's still, you know, people are still paying on secondary channels well above retail. And also I should sort of underline and, and remind you that I'm mostly talking about new watches, new watches that come out at retail that are gobbled up by people who have access to authorized dealers and then are either resold quite quickly into secondary channels or, you know, come onto the market a year or two later still at these inflated values. And so I'm not talking about historic or vintage pieces primarily. I'm talking about modern timepieces that have escalated in value in this way that we've seen kind of the mania, you know, the mania of, of the resale market in the luxury watch space. And so there is a coming back to earth 
But um, Morgan Stanley issued a report just a couple of weeks ago wanting to remind people that the market is still incredibly resilient, that prices for these luxury watches, even though they have declined a bit since their highs this spring, that they're still beating Standard & Poor's, they're still beating Bitcoin, they're still well above all these other metrics that we use to determine how is the economy performing and how are people responding to this particular market. So it's kind of interesting because finally we did see that bubble burst, but it doesn't seem yet like it's been a wholesale reckoning with, you know, the craziness. It feels like it's coming back to a place that is sustainable because it didn't feel sustainable before. Yeah. I guess my question is, from what I understand, this is mainly limited to the kind of big brands, correct? The most well-known brands. Did they try to fuel this? Did they kind of just passively watch it? Did they try to clamp down on it? I mean, what's your sense about how they viewed this? I think they viewed it. I think they probably were a bit disconcerted as well by the kinds of unsustainable prices that some of their models were getting secondhand. Not to mention, you know, neither Patek nor Rolex have a secondhand watch division. They're not making any money off of people who are taking these watches and, you know, flipping them onto secondary channels. In fact, it's a practice that they they hugely discourage, and I'm sure if one of their authorized dealers was discovered to be channeling anything out to the gray market or secondary channels, there'd be a lot of penance for that. So no, they didn't. But one thing, and this specifically, I got a kind of a funny quote from Eric Koo, this co-founder of Loot This, about Audemars Piguet. So Audemars Piguet's flagship timepiece, the Royal Oak, introduced in 1972, game changer for the industry, first luxury watch to be executed in steel, and really has since become just a phenomenon all its own in the watch world and is one of these models that has risen in value to ridiculous degrees, has numerous iterations. Well, it celebrated its 50th birthday this year, 2022. And in the lead up to that, a lot of people, especially in terms of auction houses or people selling on sites like Chrono24 or other resale sites wanted to get a piece of that pie. So they started hyping everything. There were all kinds of 50th anniversary Royal Oak sales. And the way Eric Koo put it in my piece was those are always a bit of a harbinger of doom because once the market is flooded with all these Royal Oaks, of course, they're going to come down in price. You know, the whole point of all these watches is they're exceedingly rare and the supply is extremely constrained and that's why prices are so high. So once you got all these people trying to get a piece of the hoopla of the Royal Oaks 50th anniversary, now Naturally, prices started to come down. I, I don't think in any way it's collapsed that market, not even close. But it, you know, so I don't think the companies themselves are managing this, but I think they're probably, I would guess, fairly relieved to see a bit of normalcy return to that marketplace. Uh, you, you spoke about flippers. I saw an interesting quote from WatchPro, which is a, another trade publication. And they, they said uh, one of the authorized dealers, I guess, who they spoke to actually bought back one of their Patek Philippe's at twice what they paid for it because they didn't want to make it look like they'd sold their products to a flipper. So they were that scared that they ended up taking that huge loss. Wow. Are flippers like a big part of this? And, are, you know, are they organized or is it just kind of random people? It's a really good question. I don't know of any organization to that phenomenon in the marketplace. I think because Rolex is so well known and clearly there's all these stories about how depleted boutiques are and you walk into a Rolex store and you can't find a Rolex, you know, even if Rolex authorized dealers are selling to customers they've known for a long time, they can't control what those customers do with those watches. I mean, I remember when I interviewed Terry Stern about the 
Patek Philippe Nautilus that they had reserved for Tiffany and Company, that one that came out in December with the Tiffany blue dial that, you know, went to some crazy amount of money on the secondary market before this correction. And he said he recognized that there would probably be flippers who received that watch through Tiffany and Company and then turned around and put it on the secondary market to see what crazy amount they could get for it and that he couldn't help it, you know, that ultimately there was just nothing he could do about that. But I know it is a source of great consternation for them. I don't know that it's uh, organized in any way and we'll see. We'll see what happens to that. It's Maybe it's just an inevitable byproduct of that kind of demand we, we've seen for these watches. And do, do you think, you know, this is the secondary market, but will this slow down in the secondary market? It probably will impact, I guess, what you would call the primary market, right? The retail market. Will sales of the big brands slow or is that kind of momentum just uh, unstoppable? I think we have yet to see, but from everything I've heard, and I have spoken to a Swiss analyst at a major investment bank that covers Swiss luxury goods, and his take was that the Swiss watch market is extremely polarized, and the big brands that we've just been talking about are far and away the success stories of this world, and everybody else is kind of an, a little bit of an also-ran. So Rolex, Audemars Piguet, Patek Philippe, Richard Mill, a few handful of these independents that have established massive followings. And then everybody else is just trying to get a little piece of the pie. I mean, a few brands are doing very well. Breitling's doing very, very well. A few upstarts like Norcane have been mentioned to me as making inroads in this marketplace. But for the most part, the challenge with primary sales is just that so much attention is devoted to these big brands, these four majors or a handful of leading makers. And then the rest of the market is sort of fighting for what's left. To me, that's probably the more worrying, very big picture story about the Swiss industry is just that it's very polarized. And so a lot of brands have to fight for the scraps, even when they're very established and very very great makers. You know, since we're talking about kind of the costs of being in, a, in business and what it means to gain footing in an industry and how you deal with the leaders of an industry and what that means. We've covered it in the jewelry sense pretty recently on JCK in this article that Emily Vesselin, a dear friend of the brand, our former contributor wrote. It ran June 22nd on the pro section of JCK's website. That's under the magazine tab. When you go to our homepage, you click on articles and it will be one of the features listed there. It's called The Real Costs of Breaking into the Jewelry Industry. And when she pitched it, it was an interesting pitch because it was a little bit it seemed at first more of an essay than a kind of a, a feature article. It was really kind of a acknowledging something that I think most of us know about this industry, which is that it's very, very expensive. And unless you have family ties or you come from a great deal of wealth, it's really hard to amass the materials and create a jewelry line in the first place, much less do all the other things you need to do to attract sales, you know, PR and trade shows and photography and all the bits and pieces that go into not only making a jewelry line, but then promoting it and sharing it with the community. And, you know, it's something that I took for granted after 20 plus years of covering jewelry. I would often meet very, very talented designers, extremely talented. So none of this is to take away from their talent. I love their jewelry collections, but a through line was always that they were either from the industry or had families in the industry, or they came from very, a lot of wealth, whether it's that they were married to somebody who had a very successful business or their parents had a lot of money, or they had a lot of money from their own ventures prior to jewelry. And that none of that took away from the quality of their work or the beauty of their design. But it was just a little bit of a reminder that this business is not like other businesses where you do need a great deal of capital to start. You need to buy the gold, you need to buy the diamonds, none of which of course are cheap and none of which are getting any cheaper. So Emily 
tackled this story for us. And it was meant to be kind of a guide to how do you create a budget if you're somebody starting out? How do you get a sense of what things are supposed to cost? She spoke to lots of people and lots of designers. She addressed all kinds of expenses that people entering this business might encounter. Everything from education and equipment to uh, the materials themselves and a manufacturing space or studio. She talked about what it's like to create a website and either DIY it or connect with you know, a graphic designer or a branding agency. She talked about photography and of course how critical that is when you're selling jewelry. She talked about public relations and what it means to hire a PR consultant to help promote your name, trade shows and markets, what that might cost, and finally consulting and other support. So we did like a very back of the napkin calculation on what the very bare minimum might be for somebody trying to just make a jewelry line and promote it. And that figured out to be $37,000 just in their first year. And let me tell you, that is absolutely a bare minimum. Coming up with $37,000 as a very bare minimum is just feels already so daunting. And so I think the reason it's important to address this stuff is, of course, without talking about it and getting people to start thinking about it and also highlighting opportunities where people might be able to join a collective or some organization that will help them deflect some of these costs. I mean, we don't get a very diverse industry. We get a pretty privileged set of people who may make beautiful jewelry, but don't have the kinds of points of view that we should be spotlighting and certainly the diversity and all those efforts that we are publicly very much talking about as an industry and very much directing our energies to without making this industry more affordable or accessible to people without a lot of privilege coming in, we're, we're not going to get that far. Right. And, and I can attest and I'm hardly in the same situation some of these people are in as someone who's had to promote a book and I hired a PR person and I built a website. I mean, it is extremely expensive. I would add that the JCK editors are very open to new voices and can always reach out to the people at JCK and, you know, they're happy to look at things. I mean, we're, we're always looking for new things and it's part of what makes this industry interesting. If you're a fan of podcasts, you know that listener reviews help make them possible. Please rate, review, and subscribe to The Jewelry District wherever you may listen. And now, back to the show. Well, speaking of eyeballs, you wrote a really interesting, I found it really interesting, review of a forthcoming documentary that's coming out on Showtime. You'll have to tell us when it's actually coming, called Nothing Lasts Forever. And it is, a, as you put it, a flashy new diamond documentary that will air this fall on Showtime. I'd love to hear your sort of summation of this documentary, what your takeaways were and anything you've learned since the article ran. And also, you know, when we can expect to actually see it and what the reaction you think might be. Because it's really interesting. Sounds like it was a beautifully shot film, but perhaps a little, I don't know, controversial. Uh, yeah, it is a beautifully shot film. And one of the things the, I guess, the, the director of this film, Jason Cohen, is extremely talented guy and based on my limited interactions with him an extremely nice and down-to-earth person is that one of the things he believes in is making documentaries for the cinema and to have a cinematic experience and this is very much a cinematic experience in the way he kind of puts it together so it's really beautifully shot you know the, obviously the the people in the trade are going to be more concerned with the content and uh you know i've had since i've written that piece i've had you know a bunch of conversations on it i saw it it was a screening in brooklyn and there's going to be another one coming up in the hamptons on friday august 
12th um, at the Hamptons Film Festival. So people who are around and uh, are near the Hamptons might want to see it there. So I went to this screening in Brooklyn and it was um, it's very hard when it's about a topic that you I know so many people in this movie. And again, you know, I'm in it for a second and so many people I know are in it for a long time and and Martin Ravahort is probably, you know, the first person I met really, you know, aside from family in the diamond trade. You know, when you see a movie like that, it's, it's a very odd experience and it's very hard not to take it personally. And one of the things I said in my review is it's very hard for me to objectively rate this movie because you know, there's things that are being talked about that I lived through. There are people that I know. There are conferences that I attended. There's a lot of shots at JCK Las Vegas. So JCK Las Vegas is a huge part of it. You know, I think most people are going to be very unhappy with this documentary. I certainly was unhappy with the way certain people were portrayed. And uh, I think this documentary, while I don't doubt the accuracy of the, of the quotes, because I've heard the people in this movie say these things, so I don't doubt that it's accurate. I do think it was slanted to give a specific point of view towards people, you know, especially the people who were saying that, you know, lab-grown diamonds aren't a threat, that, you know, who are, who are defending the natural diamond industry versus the lab-grown diamond industry. And, you know, it's not necessarily flattering to the lab-grown diamond industry. It's kind of against all diamonds in a way, or things that are kind of, you know, a big, as, you know, as we've heard over the years, a big quote-unquote con or a, a big marketing ploy. However, you know, it's probably a win for the lab going industry in that one of the things they always are looking for is attention and publicity and a higher profile. So from that standpoint, it's probably going to be uh, extremely good for them. Now, that said, it's a documentary on Showtime. As you mentioned, you know, documentaries can have a big impact, as we saw with SeaWorld. So yeah, I I mean, I think the thing that will probably upset people in the natural industry or just jewelers in general is the idea that it kind of talks a lot about, which is that it can be very hard to distinguish between natural and lab-grown. And this is something that the industry has always said it has under control and that it isn't an issue. And I think this is something that's going to probably raise the idea in consumers' heads. Like, if I pay extra for a natural diamond, am I sure it's a natural diamond? Mm-hmm. And uh, ideally, it will, you know, lead people to tighten up their procedures because there is anecdotal evidence. And I will say it's very very rare, but you do hear anecdotal evidence of of things getting misrepresented and perhaps certain labs not catching everything. It's something people should be aware of and shows how people from outside the industry view our industry. And it's, uh, once again, not always a a flattering portrait. And I mean, we'll see again, it's, it's a documentary on Showtime, which is not the biggest deal in the world. And you know, both you and I have been around a while, so we've seen like slamming exposés on 60 Minutes, on Primetime Live. I mean, you know, these things have certainly come and go. We've seen these things over the years many times. It will likely be a problem uh, for the industry. Uh, I don't know if it'll be a big problem or a small problem, but it, it could be a problem. When's it due out in the fall? So from what I understand, it's going to be shown at a limited amount of theaters. And you probably know the kind of art house theaters in, in New York and probably in L.A. that will be shown at. And uh, it's going to be shown on Showtime, I believe, starting in September in the fall. Well, so 
I think we're at our time now, but I just want to say I was fascinated by just the people who are talking heads in this documentary, including Asia Raiden, who our industry may know. She's an author and a historian, and she wrote Stoned Jewelry Obsession and How Desire Shapes the World. And sounds like she was sort of has a lot of quippy one-liners in, in the piece. You know, she's a provocateur, I think, which is always interesting to watch, maybe not soothing for people in the industry, but I'm really looking forward to seeing her engage with some of the topics as well as the gemologist you mentioned. I had, I had a very long talk with her and uh, I don't think I read her book the first time, but I'm reading it now. And it's, I would say it's, it's provocative, but it's interesting and uh, entertaining as she is. And, and if, you know, if I had to classify this documentary, I mean, it's not necessarily a huge expose I, I, and I don't think it's trying to be taken all that seriously, I think it's more of entertainment and it's kind of designed that way and it's designed to look great in a theater and to, you know, the director said his inspiration was Blade Runner. And, you know, throughout the movie, there's this pulsating music that kind of makes it a little bit more exciting. So, you know, I think you can view it as entertainment and we'll see how seriously people take it. Right. Well, no news is bad news as long as you're getting your name out there. What is that phrase? So hopefully... Um, no no publicity is bad publicity. There we go. No publicity is bad publicity. So we'll all have to judge when it comes out. But thanks for covering it. I'm really looking forward to seeing it now. All right. We got to wrap now. We could talk about this forever, but thanks, Rob. Happy summer. Stay cool. Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. We hope you'll join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK.